look back on it, maybe with embarrassment, but maybe also with something like awe. Like, how did this happen? It'll be a fascinating artifact of a moment in time. Like, the, the aliens are going to come, they're going to nuke us all from orbit, and then they'll come down and there'll be nothing left of us but like a few tattered copies of white fragility floating around. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the avid reader, Ricky Allpark. How are you, Ricky? I'm good, thanks. Uh, I do my best. Uh, it's often hard to get through all the material that uh, I need to, but uh, I try. It is, it is. I mean, I can only imagine uh, the cis-white authors that you read. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, men, males, mainly, is what I was getting at. M- mostly. It's just Jordan Peterson. <laughs> it's just rereading Jordan Peterson. Over and over again, reading about power hierarchies. Yes, it's all I read. Well, we're not doing that today. We're talking to Kat Rosenfield. She's, she's come back on the show to talk to us about her new book, I Can't Wait. Return guest Kat Rosenfeld is a published author, cultural critic and podcaster. Her work has appeared in Wired, Vulture, Entertainment Weekly, Playboy, Reason and Unheard. She is the co-host of a weekly podcast called Feminine Chaos with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. Her 2021 novel, No One Will Miss Her, has been nominated for the Edgar Award and she has a new book out called You Must Remember This. She first appeared on this show in October 2022. That's episode 154. Kat, welcome back to The New Flesh. Thanks for having me. So congratulations on, on writing and publishing a new book, firstly. Uh, we're going to dive into that uh, very soon, but I'm going to ask you about uh, some other things first. Firstly, your recent appearance on Fox & Friends. You were on, a sh- on the show to talk about uh, the recent alterations made uh, to the work of children's author Roald Dahl, which you've also spoken about on your, on your podcast. Now, Kat, you can't just go on Fox News and get away with it. What's, what's uh, been the reaction to your appearance? Um, I mean, at this point, this was my third time on Fox News, although I um, I was not, no, I'm sorry, excuse me, fourth time. I've, I'm a serial offender. Um, so it's, uh, it's kind of an old trick at this point, and nobody really gives me any grief about it. Um, but I guess, you know, at the first time that I went on, for sure, I felt some trepidation about it and had to be like, well, they asked, and I've never been on TV, and it seemed like fun. But at this point, you know, uh, is basically fine. Okay, so you, 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 and Steve Bannon are good friends, is what you're saying. Is he on Fox? I thought he was like a, I don't know, Newsmax or the other thing. Well, he is now. See, you're putting too much nuance in the joke. Okay, it's <laughs> yes, you are correct. He is, he is way off. There's nothing Fox's funny radar. about the idea that I'm tight with Steve Bannon. <laughs> 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 you want to, you want to tell, you want to tell a joke. It's got to be funny. Make a joke about me seeing Roger Ailes' penis. That would be funny. <laughs> I didn't see it. Oh, I feel sorry for him. After I saw the movie where Russell Crowe play, played him, I sort of felt sorry for him, or Roger, in the end. But um, maybe not. Um, look, but seriously, traditionally, there were acceptable places for authors and, and artists to appear. You know, it was... It could be... It was okay to have an, an irreverent feature in Rolling Stone, for example, which... Is absolutely woke now that magazine, but artists aren't aren't really uh, political anyway. So I'm not saying that you know it, it's a left right thing, but there because when you think about it, we've talked about this on this podcast. Artists are either they're flawed or they're straight up bad people, um, you know. Uh, but 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 now things are so divided. Are, are they just as homeless as everyone else? For for example, Brett Brett Easton a true titan, when, uh, uh, but when he appears in The Guardian or The New York Times, it's just really so he can be treated like Cersei, sort of doing her naked shame walk. You know what I mean? Like he, they, they, they just throw, they're just out to get him. He only gets to speak unmolested on Unheard uh, and, and some other uh, new media outlets. So, so what's the future here? Where are artists allowed to go to do their thing as they must? I mean, I think you're allowed to be anywhere. It's just a question of are you treated with respect when you're there, right? Like Brett Easton Ellis, I mean, he wasn't he interviewed by Isaac Chotner, Chotner, however you pronounce that, who's sort of famous for just like destroying people. Um, if I'm getting this wrong, I'm going to be really embarrassed, but I'm pretty sure that he that he did that interview. And I think that the thing is, you know, if you're, I mean, especially if you're somebody of the stature of Brett Easton Ellis, you just don't care you know you're, you're there for the conflict or not you know you're there to have a, a conversation that's that's tense or not but um the thing to do is to be able to handle yourself uh irrespective of what kind of tone the or or what kind of direction the discussion ends up taking 
Now, I have no soft lead into this question, okay? This is going to seem really like a meteor that's come out of the sky to hit you. But you are a woman, so I have to ask the question. Because uh, I need all the data I can on these matters. Do you now or have you ever found Prince Harry attractive? Oh, God, that really did come out of nowhere. Um, no. <laughs> well, I warned you. But I'm just saying that I need to know that they're in South Park. They're in news because of South Park right now. But I need I need to know this. You, I... I almost want to ask, like, answer a question with a question. Why do you need to know this? Is he like, is he just well, out of frame? Is because... he wondering what I think of him? <laughs> <laughs> if only that would mean I had, I had a lot more status than I do. So no, it's just, a, it's just, uh, I just don't understand either of them really. Um, well, I understand Megan a little more because I think she's, you know, um, traditionally attractive, you know, straight up. So Prince Harry. I don't understand. Like when I see him in his army get up from a long time ago, I'm like, oh yeah, I could, I could maybe sort of see where a woman's coming from. But now, you know, because this has come up later, we'll talk about the one of the characters in your in your book, one of the one of the men you've got. We, we got us thinking about you know what what women find attractive and the portrayal of men. And I, I was wondering about Harry, a bit like you know, what, what what is the deal with this guy? He, he seems a bit of a shell of a man to me at the moment. Yeah, a little bit. And I would say, you know, he did have a moment where, uh, you know, he had a little bit of a rugged masculinity thing going on, especially in comparison to, uh, for instance, his brother, who just seems very posh, um, you know, and very kind of pampered. He was obviously, you know, he was in the army. He still has all his hair. He has these things going for him. But that, I think, was a flash in the pan that is now over. Um, now his his whole persona, he's so petulant. And um, I don't know. I, I don't, I wouldn't, I would not describe him as pussy whipped, but I think some people would. And um, <laughs> since seeing him on Oprah, um, you know, I, I certainly... Any any lingering affection I might have had for Harry is definitely kaput. Okay, that's good. Uh, the, the, the the most telling thing is that you mentioned the hair. Okay, yeah, okay. that says everything. Let him down gently, would you? When you talk to him later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if if you mentioned his height as well, that that might be a double slam. But I don't know how how tall he is. He, he seems fairly tall. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I've only ever seen him on television, but I have no idea how tall he is. Have to look that up. Uh, now you're a Roald Dahl fan from way back. His books have been in the news because they've had sensitivity readers pouring over them to extract all the bad stuff. Um, can we blame his downright bigoted children's books for your appearance on Fox and Friends? Is he the reason why John and I platform so many turfs on this show? We've both read the BFG. My son used the word fat the other day to describe a kid at school. Should should we ban these books? I, I'm confused. I think we should start by banning your son. He's cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we ban these books? Obviously, my, my answer to that question is no. And, um, you know, just because I, I'm such a principled person, I went on Fox News, which is the enemy, to defend Roald Dahl, who was an anti-Semite from, uh, you know, contemporary intrusions by sensitivity readers. I'm just, what can I say? I've, I've really got a principled commitment to freedom of expression. I, well, I just remember our, our, the initial discussion we were having about, uh, you know, Steve Bannon and Newsmax. Would you go on Newsmax if they asked you? No. Girls got to have standards. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty rock and roll, though. Like, like, or would you go on Alex Jones? That's the next, that's the info wars. Imagine that. Oh, wow. And with us now is uh, Kat Rosenfield to talk about her book. And it was just a normal review. He didn't say anything crazy like time-trailing frogs. But would you go on info wars? <laughs> oh, God. I mean, okay. So, like... From a personal perspective, I don't really want to hang out with Alex Jones, but from the perspective of getting like book material that I could later channel into something fictional, that's a kind of an unpassable experience. I think I would have to do it. I would agree. Yeah. I think I'd do it too. Yeah, that would be an experience. Seriously, though, we'd love to get your take on these um, on on these issues as an author and a fan of Dahl's work. You know, one thing you mentioned on Fox was that these sensitivity alterations that happen in children's work uh, often occur when the author is still alive. But this obviously isn't the case here. Um, 
So what's what's your your overall view on the situation? Well, the fact that this is happening after Dahl's death and and that they're doing things to his books that I think he would certainly not appreciate is definitely part of what makes this so egregious to me. I'm not a big fan of sensitivity editing in general. I don't love the idea that this should be kind of how we're optimizing books. If you want to write a very sensitive book, great, but they don't all need to be that way. Um, I wrote about this for Unheard at one point and compared it to, uh, you know, telling a chef that he has to start tailoring every dish he cooks to the most sensitive palates. You know, everything's got to be spice-free, gluten-free, whatever. Um, But some people like spicy food, and what are they supposed to do? And, you know, there's a big table, and there's a lot of ingredients. Surely we should be able to have everything. But I do think that what they're doing with Dahl is, is egregious, not just because it's happening without his permission, but because they're keeping his name on these altered books. They have been substantively changed. You know, a lot of the the color and the nastiness that made them so fun has been really sort of stripped out of them. And yet they're still presenting them to children who don't know better as though they are the original works. And I've said this uh, a number of times at this point, but I'm just going to say it again. To me, this is akin to like putting a pair of bikini briefs on a statue of Michelangelo's David and then telling a bunch of school children that the bikini briefs were always there. Oh, yeah, he sculpted it that way. That's that's the original. (laughs) There's the original David wearing a banana hammock. Looks great. We, we we recently uh, spoke to uh, Amina Malonic and and, and we, we touched on this issue and she she had the read that uh, perhaps that there should be footnotes uh, inserted into uh, novels like this to I don't know explain what's what's happened uh, what's been altered but then she also went on to say that maybe you don't even need that maybe you just like books will just naturally fall out of favour and stop being published if then if they're of no longer any worth to society so maybe we should just you know let them be and 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 if they still resonate with audiences you know today that's fine if they don't then they'll slowly kind of slip out of of uh modern readership Mm -hmm. well i think part of the problem is that doll's books continue to be extremely popular people loved them um you know now they're reading them to their children and this is one of these things where somebody's sort of stepping in to say, well, but you shouldn't like that because it's bad or it's immoral or what have you. And, uh, and they want to alter it to try to save people from their own, um, you know, edgy taste, I guess. So I was, it got me thinking about sensitivity readers. We have talked about this a little bit before, and I don't want to flog a dead horse, but if, if, if sensitivity readers are here to stay, then shouldn't we put their names on the book cover in the way that, that translators are, for, for example? So this way, it got me thinking that this way the author and the sensitivity reader or readers can share the risk, the creative risk. So, and not to be too, because this issue's gotten me really steamed, not to, be too, not to be too snippy about it, but as you know, writing is quite hard um, and putting yourself out there is very scary um, and being creative and not destructive is seemingly quite difficult so shouldn't i I, the question i have is shouldn't these people have to stand by their ideas more publicly isn't isn't that fair i mean if you 100 percent believe in the changes you've made and what you're doing what what, why why shouldn't you share share the stage i love that idea yeah you know let's let's know who these people are and then honestly you know it's to their it's to their benefit because it's not just about you know um being held accountable for the changes you make what if people really like what you're doing to the books? And then you could like buy books that have been edited by your favorite sensitivity reader. You'd be like, oh yeah, like Gloria, I love her. She's so sensitive. Uh, you know, and then you could have a little reputation of your own. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, that's very good. But this this whole situation implies that there, there is this, pro, that, that progress is in a linear progression, right? I mean, Maybe in the future, psychologists will discover that a little fat shaming is healthy for kids, you know, and then we might have to reinsert the word fat into Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's a really interesting point, actually, about the nonlinear nature of progress, because one of the things that I became aware of when I was, um, you know, on Twitter pontificating about this angrily was that um, the Nancy Drew novels, which were originally written in the 1930s, were altered in the 1960s in accordance with the like mores of the time. And so in those uh, editions of the books, they made Nancy very proper, very ladylike, um, you know, very concerned with manners and with following the rules, because this was, you know, what people at the time thought that uh, young people reading books needed to see in their literature. 
really funny because so in the original 1930s edition just for an example there's a scene where nancy uh gets in her car and pursues a bad guy and she drives as fast as she can in the 1960s edition she gets in her car and pursues the bad guy as fast as the speed limit will allow so tender and um you know it's really funny the person who emailed me about this pointed out that right now you know 30 or sorry, uh, 100 years after the original publication of the books and about 60 years after they were um, bowlerized to be more in keeping with the times, we really would prefer to see a scrappy heroine, somebody more like the original Nancy Drew. Mm, but trans. But trans. Sure, <laughs> yes, why not? But... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just trying. I'm merely updating it for not modern you, you There's a gig there for you, John. <laughs> I could rewrite it. I, think, yeah, I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, though, that some of these sensitivity writers are children's authors themselves or aspiring children or children's authors, and they just want to sort of push Roald Dahl to the side, push it down a little bit so that maybe their books, ooh, that might be a little bit more room on the shelf for them, perhaps. Maybe. Uh, it would be very insidious, you know, a little little sabotage to get your own stuff passed. But I think the real problem with so many of the people who are spearheading these types of efforts is that they're not really, I mean, they're not good writers. They're also not really readers per se. I don't think that most of the people who are doing this to books actually like books very much, which is ironic. Um, and so, you know, what you end up with is something that's just so kind of groveling and toothless and and just not something anybody wants to read. So rather than, uh, I think we're all on a unity ticket about who we think these people are perhaps, but, but rather than a fleet of young and cheap sensitivity readers, because they are cheap, I would imagine that that's the, it's cheaper to do that than, than um, something uh, alternative. Don't we just need Titan editors? Like what happened to the big time fearless editor who was like one-on-one or and this is just my hollywood version of it but one-on-one with the author i think of like you know reading about david foster wallace's editor you know like when people are always shocked when they find out he cut stuff out of infinite jazz but but like you know someone who works one-on-one with them and and um you know really goes into the work and defends them when they need to be defended against the stakeholders the shareholders and stuff i mean i don't what is this fiction what what what, what happened to this this vision of the editor I don't know. I think they all died, <laughs> went extinct, um, <laughs> or or maybe they were, or maybe they were pushed out. But no, I mean, this is one of the things about publishing as it exists now. And you know, I want to be clear that I've been lucky to work with an editor who is a great champion of you know all of her authors' work and has never tried to do something to my voice or to my stories that I thought was you know untoward. But um, in general the thing that you see is that publishing houses have become scared and they they don't stand by their authors when there is a controversy in the way that they once might have. A really good example is somebody like Salman Rushdie. I'm not sure that he would be able to find the footing today that he did uh, you know, when he was originally publishing and when he had a publishing house that stood beside him and behind him and really you know, defended him against the people who wanted to kill him. Um, I think today, you know, the the way that people operate has changed and people are scared. I don't know that he would find the same kind of support. Well, this got I thought, you know, one one last question on before we move on from this this topic because, you know, um I think we I think we need insens- insensitivity readers really. Uh, I, I, so all my all my all my favorite novels are deeply insensitive. Blood Meridian is in, is insensitive. Uh, and I'm reading Cormac McCarthy's latest novel and um you know, it's not a torrent of hate or anything, but there are things in it that I feel would not fly if he was a new writer, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it's scenes mostly of men sitting around bars in the South talking about industrial diving equipment. Um, there's like an old-fashioned homophobic slur starting with F. Probably the, the, it's the N-word of the gay community uh, is in there. Uh, there's, a sense that he, there's a sense that he didn't get the memo, you know, and, um, and I'm glad he didn't. And um, I feel, <laughs> I feel like, and uh, I feel like there's an access all areas pass given to legacy writers uh, that's being phased out, just like you would in any business. Like you pay some people a certain legacy fee, and then you just sort of phase it out. And if I submitted this manuscript, it's my feeling that there's simply no way 
that they would allow me to get away with anything that he's done in this book. Even the most basic thing of the fact of the men sitting around talking about equipment. I think they'd be like, well, don't we need to... I don't want to say queer up this space or anything, but I think that those something to that effect would be would be implied. Yeah, I mean, you know, the problem with this is you're not Cormac McCarthy. What are you going to do? I mean, having a, a I'm working on it. <laughs> you're going to transition to being Cormac McCarthy. I identify as Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a bold move. Uh, it could actually work for you, but yeah, I mean, there. I don't know. It's just, a, it's just a tough time. It's a tough time to be a writer. It's a tough time to be a new writer. But, I mean, as we were talking about Brett Easton Ellis before, even if you are kind of a known quantity and, and you're known for being provocative and for being fearless, that's uh, not necessarily assured that you're going to continue to be allowed to do your work. Um, I... Ugh, there's a story I wish I could tell. Unfortunately, I can't share, but um, I, I do know of a really acclaimed writer, you know, somebody very established who actually was not able to publish his newest book because a sensitivity reader basically just um, torpedoed it. And that's sort of where we are right now. So a little bleak note to end Look, that I, topic yeah. on. Sorry, guys. Look, it's 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 really tough, Kat, but it's true. It's the truth, and and I mean, I, I you know, I'm very reasonable and, and zen about most things in life. But I got to say, these people are really. If someone told me at a dinner party or something that they were a sensitivity reader, I'd flip the table, <laughs> and I'd be like, "This is," I'd be like, "This is over." You are a shock troop of of you are killing the thing that we all love in this room. Anyway, that's all I got to say. You know what? I'm going to be a contrarian. I'm just real quick. I'm going to be a contrarian. I'm going to I'm going to defend sensitivity readers for those who want them. If you want to write that kind of book, I think you should absolutely be able to solicit that kind of feedback. I think it should be provided to you. It's the forced sensitivity reading and the idea that we all have to conform to this that really bothers me. Well, let's move on to your book, Kat. Uh, it's called uh, your, your new book is called You Must Remember This. It came out in January this year. Do you mind telling our listeners just a little bit about it? Sure. So You Must Remember This is a gothic mystery. It takes place on the windswept coast of Maine at Christmas time, where a fractured family has gathered for what they believe is going to be their matriarch's last holiday. Her name is Miriam Caravasios. She's 85. She has dementia. Uh, when she dies, she's going to leave behind a $20 million fortune. So all of her children and her granddaughter, Delphine, have gathered some to pay their respects, some to maybe try to shore up their inheritance. Uh, things are tense. The family's sort of at each other's throats. And then on Christmas Eve, in the middle of the night, Miriam slips out of the house. She walks out into the frozen cove. She falls to the ice and she dies. And it was a terrible accident. Or was it? And that's <laughs> <laughs> that's the mystery. Very good. Now, John and I both had very different reading experiences of this book. Uh, he read it the old-fashioned way, whereas I listened to the audio book. And uh, what was good about the audio book was that two readers were used, one for the character Delphine and a different reader for Miriam. Mm -hmm. And I quite liked this approach. It kind of helped me travel back and forth from the present to the past, which is what your book book sort of does. Um, was this your idea or, or, or did, did the audio company just, just do it? Or That's all HarperCollins. You know, they're very, very good at their audiobook production, I have to say. I've heard nothing but good things. And uh, yeah, so when, um, when they published my first one, No One Will Miss Her, we had three narrators because there were three perspective characters. And in this one, there are two. And so we had two. And um, they sent me little clips of uh, the potential voices for each character. And, um, you know, I got to weigh in with my, with my favorites. I'm not sure if they picked them, um, but I have the most faith in them. So I'm really, I'm really glad to hear that you, uh, you know, listened to it on audio and that you enjoyed it. Did you consider doing something similar for the book? Like, you know, you could have uh, uh, Comic Sans as the font for the, the modern <laughs> part and something Yoldi for the other stuff. What do you, that's just my idea. That would be interesting. Now that's that's insensitive. Okay, like that's the most offensive thing that anyone has suggested doing to a book ever. Comic Sans. What, what wasn't there? Just an idea. Wasn't there a couple of years ago uh, some mainstream newspaper had a headline in Comic Sans or some strange, you know, like awful font and got got it got heaps of blowback. I, I remember that. Must Somewhere in the back that. of my mind. Now the hard questions, Kat, 
I always ask these questions uh, of my own work, so I'm going to put them to you. Why this story? Why now? Um, okay. So let's see. Um, this was my pandemic novel, which is to say I wrote it during the pandemic. The pandemic is not in it uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because the pandemic was boring and sucked. And the other was that uh, for reasons related to the, these dual timelines, I needed this story to take place in 2014 so everybody could be the proper age. Um, but so the the story is inspired in part by my relationship with my own grandmother who passed away in April of 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, she was 105, so this was not unexpected. But nevertheless, it was um, kind of a rough time to lose somebody because you couldn't do any of the things that you would do to mark a passing. You know, I wasn't able to like see my family. We couldn't have a funeral, none of that. Um, so that was very strange. And uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about her. Um, she and I were actually not particularly close, but it ended up not really mattering because uh, during the last 30 years or so of her life, she had dementia and she did not remember who I was. She did not remember like having seen me or having seen anybody. She didn't remember the past 30 years. Uh, you know, she was very kind of lost um, in, in her own mind and also in time. And this was an interesting thing about having a relationship with her, which was, I would have to just show up and meet her where she was, wherever she happened to be that day, whatever she wanted to talk about. And what she often wanted to talk about were memories that she had from her youth that were incredibly vivid. Um, and so it was sort of like time traveling with her into these past moments. Um, one of my favorite stories from her was, in 1932, when she was 17 years old, she applied to be a coat check girl at the Roseland Ballroom in Chicago, and they told her right to her face that she was not pretty enough and she couldn't have the job. And uh, she was very, very salty about this, as though it had happened like last month, which I thought was really funny. And um, so I spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about her over the, the year, um, you know, after she died, that I was working on this book. I wanted to write something exploring what it's like to sort of lose yourself and what actually remains of you as your memory starts to go and what kind of a legacy we leave behind. Because it's often not really like the things about your life that you think you'll remember and that you think other people will remember. I don't think they're often, I don't think we predict that very well. You know, it ends up being something else. It ends up being maybe something, um, you know, something different, something odd, or something haunting. And Miriam, of course, is haunted by choices she made when she was young that have really changed the course of her life and that ultimately changed the course of her whole family's life. Well, I had such a strange experience reading this book because uh, while I was reading it, I was visiting a, 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 a very sick relative on the other side of the country, a baby boomer who's who's declining uh, uh, very quite rapidly. And uh, I was taking them out, sort of on care, you know, sort of care visits, and I really identified with this, um, the position of Delphine having to having to just be the sort of the active listener of of Miriam, and and this idea, what you said a second ago, of, of time traveling, and it's so fascinating that what was in your obviously the experience that your character has, and uh, what I what I went through with with my relative is is obviously a very human thing. I think when you get to, is it possible when you get to a certain age and when you know and when you know it's the doors closing you just want to take this tour through through and to someone i don't know you want to create a connection with with the the a, a younger person and 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 keep this this i don't know this nostalgic dream alive or something i mean am i going to be eventually going i ran a podcast where we talked about <laughs> trans stuff like most of the time and also some race <laughs> stuff from America. And like, is that what I'm going to be doing? It was, it was really weird. Is that what this podcast is like when I'm not on it? <laughs> no, 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 never, never, no, no, never. No. <laughs> okay. Just some, of, just some of the time. Just some of the time. It's, you know, I mean, it's an interesting and a kind of a sad thing to think about. But yeah, I mean, I wonder... You know, sometimes it seemed to me, you know, spending time with my grandmother, that it didn't really matter that I was there, that what, what she was doing, what she was reliving was not for me at all. It was for her. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, 
you know, perhaps just changing changing tack a, a little bit. I'm, I, I'm interested in in the research you would have had to have done for the the book. You know, can you tell us about if they if you had to do a lot of research, what was the process like? Oh yeah, so um, the book obviously, as we've been talking about, it does have two timelines. Um, one of them is present day, or well, 2014, and the other is uh, it follows Miriam as she's a young woman. So it it follows her from um, you know the 1930s up on through about 1965. And so I did have to spend a lot of time um, trying to find out what life was like in Maine, um, in Bar Harbor, which used to be a playground for the rich and famous um, before this fire consumed basically an enormous amount of the entire state of Maine in 1947. And that fire is pivotal to, um, you know, at least one plot point. So yeah, I spent a lot of time reading historical records. Um, I, I read a lot of stuff accounts from people who were on the island when it burned. Um, it was really, really harrowing stuff. The the um, escape from this fire, which traveled in ways that, you know, having never experienced this, it's it's hard to fathom that it would it would move in one direction one day and in another direction the other. So they had a sort of a sense of where it was and where it was going to be. And so people who were evacuating from their like really grand homes, you know, where they were where they were spending their summer, um, they had a little bit of uh, a heads up to get ready and to pack their stuff and go. And so I read this incredible account from a woman who lived at a house called Barbary Ledge of um, how she was like filling up her car and like trying to decide which of her hats to save and, and so on and so forth. And there's some moments like that that certainly made their way into the book. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in process and, and how writing happens. Can you tell us sort of the nuts and bolts of how this book came together? What, what was your routine like? Uh, whilst writing it. I don't, I don't think we talk enough about, you know, how, how this actually happens. <laughs> My routine. You know, uh, you know that gif of a, a cat sitting at a computer just like mashing the keys in super fast, like super high speed? <laughs> <laughs> it's basically that. Yes. Um, no, so I... Um, I like to outline uh, or, well, plot map. It's not quite as um, as organized as an outline what I create. But um, because I write mysteries, it's important to have a lot of, um, like, know where all the moving pieces are because otherwise you just end up lost, you know, trying to remember how to put this puzzle together. Um, so I had a map. I had two actually separate maps, one of Delphine's timeline and one of Miriam's. And then I laid them out side by side and started sort of writing loosely through like, just here's what's going to happen in this scene. Here's what's going to happen in this scene uh, until I was able to figure out where they would connect to each other. And that happened very, like, very organically, which was really cool. Um, you know, there are all these moments in, you know, in one timeline that kind of just flip you into the other one and there's like an echo there and these women's stories exist in conversation with each other which is like a big part of um you know the sort of the central theme of the book these two lives being lived um you know in separate times but they share so much um so i put together these plot maps i figured out where all the pieces were gonna go and then i uh just started writing linearly um i started beginning and when i reached a point where miriam's story would intrude on delphine's timeline i would switch gears and i would do that and uh i just you know went back and forth until the end and do you stay away from other novels while you're writing or are you inspired by other people's work it depends you know i i try to be cautious about reading too closely in the same genre that i'm writing because i don't want to accidentally internalize somebody else's work and somebody else's words and then you know do plagiarism which is bad um, but I did read, um, I read some books from the, the forties, the fifties and the sixties, you know, just to kind of get like in that mindset. Um, and I read some Gothic, um, short stories by Daphne du Maurier also, you know, just trying to like get a feel for how to construct things. Um, what else did I read? And I, oh, I read, I read Shirley Jackson, uh, you know, she's a great Gothic writer. And, um, I thought that it was okay if a little bit of her influence crept into my books. Now, skipping ahead a little bit, Ricky and I are both constantly disappointed by the reactions of our family and friends to our creative work. So they're either completely ple pleasantly uninterested or they don't get it at all. Or, you know, is this something you've encountered? Like, I mean, you, you know? 
No, no. I mean, I have a very supportive family. <laughs> um, really? <laughs> well, you just yeah. you go, I wrote this book and they're like, they're like, oh, they, they sit up and they go, oh, tell me all about it. I completely get what you're saying. That's great. Tell me more. I mean, really? my mom is my, my mom is my first reader. Um, so she, you know, she's like, send me more chapters. Why, why aren't you writing more? Like, I need to see how it ends. Um, no, my, my family is very supportive. My husband, I, um, I don't make him read my work until it's uh, in bound galley form. So, you know. John, no, I, th I think this could be an Australian thing. We, I think we, we, we experienced this in Australia where people are almost like um, passively aggressively against your creative work. Like they just, they just want you to work in the bank like they do, or they just want you to be a school teacher like they are, you know, they, they secretly hate the fact this that you do a podcast. This is true. You might not know this, you, Kat. We do have, to write a novel. We've got a thing called here, it's tall poppy syndrome. So that's why I love talking to Americans because they, they, they've got, they, they've got this sort of like, yeah, tell me more, man. Like, yeah, you, you know, they're, they're, they're like, they're like, into, they're, 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 they're hyped, you know, whereas, yeah. You, you will say, oh, we're doing a podcast, we're interviewing these people and whatever. People just be like, yeah, right. Anyway, and they'll just be moving on, <laughs> you know? Kat, Kat my, my mom doesn't even know I have a podcast. Oh, I mean, you should probably keep that information from her. It might upset her. <laughs> she doesn't even know what a podcast is, but, you know, I, I, I just can't ex try and explain to her what, what it is. I think what we're and, getting at, you know. Kat, is can we swap families? Um, I mean, I... <laughs> I want your mum. Can she be my mum? My mom. I mean, if, if I had a dime for every time a man said that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you, you guys are making Australia sound really boring. And I was always under the impression that it was very exciting. Well, it, yeah. Look, I mean, you, it, it's got, if you like the beach and all that and the physical stuff and drinking and all that, that's, that's all fun. But to create, we're not known for our creative output. No, you're known for your spiders the size of a Buick. As I understand it. That's, yes. <laughs> that's right. Yep. And they I are mean, maybe around. everyone, I mean, yeah. I, you know, if, if there were spiders that size around me all the time, I might not be able to like really pay attention to what my children were doing creatively either. I would just be very nervous. We, we also ride kangaroos to work as well. I don't know if you knew that or not. But, um... I haven't, uh, hadn't heard that. I have seen videos of um, somebody punching one in the face, which was... Very exciting. Oh, yeah, it's awful. Is that like a, is that like treason? Is that like a national, like, is it punishable by death to, to fight a kangaroo? The, everything in the Simpsons episode is, is true. <laughs> everything that happens <laughs> yes. in that Australian <laughs> Simpsons episode is pretty much, uh, yeah. No, but look, the, the kangaroos get treated with a bit of, you know, they are a national emblem, but, you know, although they are gamey, people eat them and they're considered a pest and stuff as well. So, yeah. But do what you like. Mm. They're weirdly ripped. I mean, yeah. I, I keep seeing images of them like, you know, they've got really serious biceps, which is kind of freaky. But anyway, um, I'm sorry that your guys' families are not more supportive of your work. Thanks, Kat. It's all right. Thank you. It's all right. <laughs> one, day, one day we'll make it to the U.S. One day we'll make it. It's okay. I'll send this podcast to my mom if it makes you feel better. I'm sure she'll think it's great. <laughs> yes, great. Yep. Hi, hi Kat's mom. <laughs> Um, I, I have to admit, it was hard for me not to constantly compare the lives of the two female characters, the, the millennial De, uh, Delphine and Miriam, who I think we would class as part of the silent generation. Um, so Delphine seems to be crippled by, uh, you know, modern smartphone enhanced neuroses. Her life navigating work, friendships and and love seem uh, nightmarish, but she contrasts with, with Miriam, who had a much more romantic and rebellious adolescence. Now, may, maybe I'm more hyper aware of this contrast, given my frequent listening of your podcast, Feminist Chaos, which often delves into the modern neuroses of, of, of millennial and Zoomer women. I, I guess, Kat, I just want to know who has it better, women growing up in the mid 20th century or tech savvy boss bitches today? I'm going to go with tech-savvy boss bitches just because, you know, we have, like, so many um, useful things now that women in the, like, 30s, 40s, and 50s did not. Uh, just, I mean, if just household appliances alone, I'm sorry, it's a better time to live. Well, and on the other side of the coin, you, you paint the romantic interests uh, of, of both these women um, 
Well, I suppose you're just being quite neutral in presenting them, but Miriam's bow from, from ye olde times is sort of a labourer working on fishing boats, muscular, looks, you know, tall, dark and handsome, masculine, take charge type of guy. Uh, whereas Delphine's love interest is 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 a little different. It's more of the modern man, uh, a carer in a in a nursing home, um, which I, th- I think is a, a, an interesting uh, you know job for him to have. He doesn't seem to inflame Delphine, although she is attracted to him, uh, but doesn't inflame Delphine the way that Miriam's fella got, 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 does. So having zero idea about of what women are thinking, hence my question about uh, Harry much earlier, I was constantly asking myself, is there a comparison being made about the types of men that women you know, want or need or however you want to put it, uh, say 80 years ago and today? Well, I don't think um, what's being conveyed there is anything quite so broad as what women want, but there is well, I mean, what Adam uh, Delphine's and Theo, Miriam's husband, have in common is they're both working class, um, whereas Delphine and Miriam both come from money. And so that dynamic informs the relationships in both cases in ways that become complicated. That's interesting. It doesn't seem to... Uh, it, the, the fact that uh, Miriam's uh, fella uh, is working class is a much bigger deal for the family than, I think, Delphine's family. Um, you know, I don't know that Delphine really... I think she, well, she thinks it's a big deal. She thinks it will be a big deal, and she's nervous about revealing it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, but it's certainly the attitudes that shaped, um, or rather the mores that shaped the attitudes of the time are different, and so each gets a different reception. Well, in in your book, uh, one of Delphine's ex-boyfriends uh, comes across as one of these Tinder guys you hear single women talk about. Basically, he's just DTF and not interested in much else long term. Uh, what are your views on, on romance in the, in the Tinder age? Uh, I'm glad that I don't have to participate in it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been married since before Tinder existed, so uh, I got really, really lucky. And now I just need my husband to outlive me so that I never have to experience dating on apps. I think I think all three of us have have uh, managed to escape Tinder. Absolutely, yeah. We, we, me and me and my wife constantly say, "What a fucking nightmare it must be out there," you know, like like just just a just a, a vivid, despicable nightmare. All the stories <laughs> that I'm sure all three of us get from the single people are, it's just it's it, it's lurid and lonely and gross. And yeah, I I, I thank uh, every day that I don't have to be part of it. Lurid, lonely, and gross is, um, yeah, that's the trifecta. Now, we are uh, mindful of, of the time, uh, so we need to, we, we just got a couple of other things to cover from some of your other writing, perhaps, uh, moving away from your, your novel just, just briefly. Now, we need to get to the rump of the discussion. You wrote an article for uh, Unheard entitled, Is It Racist to Like Big Butts?, which I believe received a lot of helpful feedback from the community. Uh, and since this is an issue I am passionate about, can you tell us uh, what went down? Okay, <laughs> what went down? Um, well, all right. So this was a book review. Uh, I just want to like say that right up front because a lot of people seemed to have missed this uh, this crucial fact in their rush to be outraged about the article that they had not read. Um, I wrote a review of a book called Butts: A Backstory by Heather Radke. And um, it is a history, a cultural history of the butt and what it means, uh, specifically women's butts, uh, which, you know, already gets into perhaps some of the some of the oversight. Um, I think that really like a cultural history of the human butt would have been better. But nevertheless, um, unheard kindly appended an extremely incendiary headline to this piece was, is it racist to like big butts? And so for um, a full week on the internet, I had a very, very bad time uh, as people became inflamed by this article. Having not read it, they thought that I was telling them that the answer to the question in the headline was, in fact, yes, it is racist to like big butts. Um, I received a lot of helpful commentary from strangers on the internet about what my own butt must look like. Thank you, internet men. And um, and then, you know, but as these things go, it, it died down and I, people moved on to the next outrage. And I thought that was going to be the end of it, so to speak. Um, and then I did not factor in 
the existence of Brazil, like the country, uh, which mm. is where apparently like butts are the national religion. That's and the Mecca. That's butt Mecca. <laughs> I think like maybe a week or two, like a week or two after this whole, um, you know, controversy initially erupted, some Brazilian politicians caught wind of the piece and started posting it on their Instagrams. And then I started getting a lot of angry messages in Portuguese um, about my perceived slights against the butt. Um, but I couldn't understand them. So that was that was fun. Polit politicians are doing this? I mean, the politicians weren't sending me the messages, but, um, you know, they have a lot of followers. They have like millions of followers, these Brazilian politicians. So I do now know how to say big butt in Portuguese. It's bunda grande. Yeah. Bunda, bunda grande. grande. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's cultural appropriation. <laughs> Breaking all mm. the rules today. Um, so I have a quote here. Quote. The book is insistent on this front. Butts are a black thing, and liking them is a black male thing. And the appreciation of butts by non-black folks represents a moral error, cultural theft or stolen valor, or some potent mix of the two, close quote. That's from the article, uh, Kat's article. Isn't this thesis completely interchangeable nowadays in liberal circles? So I, I feel like you could substitute butts in this case with anything, fishing, dancing, collecting stamps. It's just a case of, pale-faced folks doing what they do best, raping and pillaging something. And, you know, I mean, I, I suppose the broader question I have is, will, will we look back on this elite sort of white guilt genre with any embarrassment or, or, is it, or do you think it's here to stay? Oh, I think that we'll look back on it maybe with embarrassment, but maybe also with something like awe. Like, how did this happen? It'll be a fascinating artifact of a moment in time. Like the, the aliens are going to come, they're going to nuke us all from orbit and then they'll come down and there'll be nothing left of us but like a few tattered copies of white fragility floating around. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And look, the claim is absurd anyway. You posted a link to a, a chorus line in, in the article as well and I watched that clip and, you know, they, they, they say the expression, you know, TNA, tits and ass or whatever. And that expression alone proves that it's, it's always been, us has always been 50% of the deal. So I rest my case. That's a well-argued point, sir. I can't complain. <laughs> Thank you very much. I can't complain about anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was, it's a wonderful article. I encourage everyone to read it. And I, have to, I should actually ask, what, what would your title have been if you could have picked a different title for it? I'm, I'm always interested because everyone who comes onto our podcast always says they picked the wrong, they picked a title which was the same as the one that was picked for yours, which is really, yeah, incendiary or whatever. And I'm, I'm just interested, what would yours have been? Oh, probably a pun. Something, a butt pun. I mean, not that I was like, I was not held back from making all the butt puns I wanted in the body of the piece itself. So, you know, that was fine. Mm. But um, Delicious yeah. one at the end, which I'm not going to uh, uh, ruin. <laughs> I want everyone to read it. Is, is this a common thing, though, that, that, that uh, editors of magazines will try and hype up the, uh, the title just to sort of get, get clicks? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially if the work itself is sort of more nuanced, I think they often do this to try to, um, you know, get people mad enough to click on it. And then, you know, they read the argument that's not what they were anticipating. And then they're confused and angry. And so they share it and it goes wildly viral. Well, that's why I've already, the, uh, this episode was going to be called, you know, Fox Pundit, Cat Rosenfields uh, was going to be the name of the episode. So get people mad. Oh. Yeah, go for it. It's your podcast. You can do whatever you want. I won't do that. I'm not going to do that. No, no, we're, not, not, we're not doing that. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> My mom <laughs> would be pretty joke. disappointed in you, though, if you did. <laughs> well, oh, I'll, can't I definitely do that. won't do it. Can't I won't do it. No. Uh, well, I'd, I'd like to ask you more broadly about the writers you read. Uh, what, what writing inspires you, Kat, and, and who are the authors that, that you surround yourself with? Oh, gosh. Um, I do love Daphne du Maurier. She's just... Um, she's dead now, but she was fabulous. Um, I love Tara Isabella Burton, who writes novels about complex relationships between young women. Um, I love Lee Stein, the author of a great satire called Self-Care and also a close personal friend. Um, what else do I... Uh, I've been making my way through some of the classics recently, um, you know, things that I sort of missed out on when I was uh, in public high school and uh, had you know, gaps in my education. So I recently read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, and I thought that was great. I've been reading a lot of Steinbeck. Um, I love him. And 
I don't know. I'm looking forward actually to uh, to getting through a, a current work crunch so that I can read all of the enormous backlog of books that I've ordered off the internet that are just like sitting in a pile. Um, and when I do that, I will come back and tell you guys some more names of people who are good writers. But how do you make the decision, Kat, between, I'm always cursed with this, you know, do, do, do I read something tried and true, something from the past that will, will you know, f- enrich me that way? Or do I read the new, the new thing? Well, how do you, how do you make that, find that balance yourself? Oh gosh, I have not reread something in so long. Um, I think that that's a luxury and, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the thing is to maybe, you know, maybe try to split the difference, um, you know, pick up the new thing. And if it doesn't grab you, uh, within the first 50 to hundred pages, then you can give yourself permission to put it down and, uh, go back to something that's familiar and reassuring compromise. Does that work? I've got to say my, my wife would never not finish a novel. Like, like even if she hates it, she has to finish it. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. So would you recommend that if you're just not digging a book, you just put it down and you move on and you, you read yeah, something else? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I started doing this. I gave myself the gift of not finishing every single book that I pick up. And uh, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made, like personal ethos wise. Well, that's great. I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't feel so guilty now when I don't, when I don't read, don't finish something. Well, uh, I will encourage everyone to finish your book cat <laughs> which, <laughs> which yes, is uh, uh you must remember this just one last question I, we've, we've sort of already covered it because we we um we just talked about all the writers you're reading uh, but you know we have to ask our last question which is what are you reading right now like tonight what are you reading on this on the bedside table oh i'm reading the writing retreat by julia bartz i'm doing an event with her this week so pretty good. Excellent. Well, uh, we encourage everybody also to check out your podcast, Feminine Chaos, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, one episode that comes to mind is the one you did about demisexuals, which I thought was both informative and hilarious. So everyone check out Feminist Chaos. Everyone go and read Kat's book. Uh, Kat, where, where can people find you? Uh, you're on Twitter. What, what, what's your Twitter handle? I'm at Kat Rosenfield. Just my name, K-A-T-R-O-S-E-N-F-I-E-L-D. And uh, you can find my book any place that you buy a book. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's in your local indie, uh, depending on where you are, I guess. I don't know if they have it in Australia, but they have it everywhere in the States. Well, thanks so much, Kat. And uh, we hope to catch up with you again uh, when you finish uh, an- another uh, piece. And, uh, uh, and until then, uh, you know, just... Um Stay off, uh, off Newsmax and Infowars and, and you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll be fine. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.